supplementation? What does it mean? Should we be taking vitamin D? How much? Is there such a thing as taking too much? Might it cause harm? And we'll touch upon uh, genome vitamin D and heart disease as well. We're going to talk about another new study having to do with estrogen in your brain. I wonder if it's men's brain or just women's brain. Well, the, the study talks about women, but, you know, inquiring minds want to know, yeah. like, a, if there's a connection. Right. Do you see the study they just put out between men and, and their cars? No. So they found out that <laughs> men who drive BMWs, Audis, or Mercedes, right, have a personality trait that makes them, in to paraphrase the study, a little more obnoxious, a little more aggressive, assertive. They didn't find the same correlation amongst women, though, who drove those cars. Really? I wonder. Like I, 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 it's stereotyping, though, yeah, right? Yeah, right, of course. A study like that seems to propagate stereotypes. Mm -hmm. I don't think I like it very much. Anyhow, we're back to the topic. By the way, folks, we are just rendering opinion. Remember, what we talk about here is not meant to be specific medical advice for any individual, but just general informational. You should always confer with your healthcare provider before choosing to take supplements or contemplating any treatment pathway. This is just general information, not specific. Right. Got that? Got that? Yes. So whatever I say here, you have my permission to totally ignore. Okay. <laughs> um, hey, did you watch the um, the president? Did you watch yeah, the, the State, State of the Union? Union? Yes, I did last yeah. night. Very I thought it was it was it was fascinating. Mm -hmm. The division. We watched it in front of our eyes. Right. Uh, you wonder how they get anything done up there. Right. They're so busy just hating each other. They are. Uh, like Nancy, you know, maybe they're too close. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe, maybe they're, I mean, physically too close, right? <laughs> maybe if all the Democrats uh, got together, like, maybe we need to redesign Washington. Yeah. Have all the Democrats meet in, oh, I don't know, like Iowa, and mm -hmm. all the Republicans can meet in, like, you know, Massachusetts. Right. And then every now and then they get together. Once, yeah. Maybe they'd hate each other less. I think they need that. Okay. Anyhow, <laughs> um, you guys got to take care of your own health. You know, uh, Trump spoke about prescription drugs and the need to bring the price down, we're advocating that you want to live your life in a manner that minimizes the need for prescription drugs ever. So let's let's dive into the brain piece. And this is most relevant because the uh, what we do to our bodies, to our health, ultimately to our brain, has a delayed effect that can span decades. And the way to keep your brain healthy is not to note it at the time of its deterioration and then decide what I'm going to do now that I'm starting to become demented. That may be too late. Right. It's always prudent to try to take proactive steps, and there's never such a thing as hopelessness. But it just makes sense, doesn't it, folks? Start early. Look at the um, traumatic brain injuries, the um, football players that subsequently develop dementia or other athletes or other individuals. It doesn't happen five years after they retire. It happens a decade later. So my point is that we can't rely on studies to fully guide us. Mm -hmm. They are not designed in that manner, typically, to span 10 and 20 years. So if we want to know whether or not uh, an intervention may protect our brain, we have to look at what's known as these observational cohorts. And that's what they did in the journal Menopause in an article published 2019 the question was, would estrogen, the exposure to estrogen over the span of life, diminish or increase the risk of dementia in women? And they evaluated that based on a couple things. One was their age of, uh, of menarche when they started to have their period and when it ended. 
a longer span of having your period correlated with more estrogen exposure. They also, interestingly, looked at women who took estrogen support or hormone therapy. Now, bear in mind, the type of hormone therapy mostly looked at is not bioidentical, the type that is most commonly advocated by functional doctors like me, but rather the old-fashioned um, uh, equine or horse urine-derived hormone. Nevertheless, despite the fact that it was the older style, they did notice an association between longer estrogen exposure and less dementia. That's pretty important. I'm going to repeat that. More estrogen, less dementia. The duration of exposure correlated with better brain function. Right. So the longer you had it in you, the more protection it appeared to offer. The younger you started, the more benefit you acquired. And by younger, we're talking within five years of your, of your menopause. So this adds more information to the ongoing reflection, risk versus benefit. I'm a strong advocate in favor of hormone replacement therapy. I've seen its benefit in individuals um, and the literature surrounding the bioidentical and hormone replacement continues to grow. It is controversial. The um, uh, Menopause Society, North American Menopause Society, advocates the use of hormone therapy only through menopause and then to stop, mm -hmm. just to control symptoms. The fear factor has to do with cancer, breast cancer in particular. But now what about the benefit? If it helps your brain, how would you follow that equation if the evidence support or if the evidence correlating its risk with breast cancer is not as reliably consistent as we initially thought? And there are other studies that have questioned the correlation, the strength of the correlation. You know, where would you fall in that equation? I mean, you're a young woman thinking about this as we're talking about it. I value my brain pretty highly. And I, you know, the correlation with men has to do with testosterone. There are mm -hmm. studies looking at men who, for medical reasons, have had their testosterone levels diminished, like either through testicular uh, removal or through drugs that block hormone. Wow. And they've noticed an increase in dementia mm -hmm. in those folks. So when it comes to what are we protecting, the real answer is all of the above, right? We don't want any of it. We don't want cancer, heart disease, or dementia. But invariably, we've got to kind of weigh risk benefit. So I thought this study was fascinating. Mm -hmm. I thought it adds to the literature regarding risk benefit for hormone therapy. The fact that it came out of the journal Menopause, a very um, mainstream journal, I think was interesting as well. And I think it'll start to change some thoughts about that conversation. Um, by the way, if you guys have questions, how, how do they ask a question on this? They can just comment on it, and then we can answer on our end. Can you see that? Yes, I can. You can? Yeah, it'll pop up I, on the computer. Oh, it does? Yes. Right, I feel better. Mine isn't <laughs> as bad. Um, let's talk. What do you want to talk about next? Um, the uh, coronavirus or okay. vitamin D? Let's do vitamin D first. We'll do vitamin D. Let's do vitamin D. I'm kind of fed up with coronavirus. But yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll come back. We, we won't. Uh, we'll be about another five, ten minutes max. So vitamin D, another study, this one came out uh, in 2019, and they found a correlation between vitamin D and breast cancer. That is, women who acquired breast cancer had a lower vitamin D level than those who did not. Now, the study did not answer the question, if you take vitamin D, will your risk of breast cancer go down? But rather, 
it started to establish this connection between low vitamin D and an increased incidence of breast cancer. Right. So the question then becomes, well, why does that happen? It turns out vitamin D, it's not so much a vitamin as it functions more like an enzyme, and it's very active in cellular division and proliferation a couple ways. It helps facilitate DNA replication. That is, it helps RNA, messenger RNA, to more accurately duplicate the DNA of the cell as it divides. It's been theorized that if vitamin D is low, it strains the ability to divide accurately, mm -hmm. creating mutant cells, a.k.a. potential for cancer. That's been one mechanistic theory that may be at play. There are others that have to do with um, possible inflammation as a correlate. The um, levels to aspire towards are interesting. So the vitamin D correlating with increased breast cancer risk in this study, anyhow, did, um, did look pretty strong. However, we don't know if taking vitamin D will help protect you. And can you take too much and where should it fall? I think vitamin D has been one of the most written about and talked about supplements in the past five years. I agree. You seem to see it all the mm -hmm. time. And the studies fall into two broad camps. One, which is it's great, take it. <laughs> and the other, which is, ah, don't waste your money. Right. In fact, I do believe, I think it was the, um, the um, recently came out with recommendations not to test for vitamin D levels. I think, I think I'm pretty, I'll, I'll double check that. I'll get back to you guys next week at the same time. It's the United States Preventative Task Force. This is a group of, um, it's a mixed group. The Preventative Task Force has a job of looking at the information and making recommendations. One of the cool things about them is they're not all doctors. There are some just smart folk hanging out. The other cool thing about them is they're not all specialists. So they're kind of generalist, which I kind of like. And they tend to be kind of conservative. So you'll find their recommendations, for instance, for mammograms are less aggressive than the oncology societies. However, they did come out recommending against testing routinely for vitamin D. The problem is that it deprives individuals of knowing what their vitamin D level is. And as you'll find out in a moment, that may be information worth having. And when the United States Preventative Task Force declares something not relevant, insurance companies tend to not pay for it. Right. So we'll have to find out. For next week, too, uh, remind me, we're going to find out. I'm going to verify the information, and we're going to find out how much it costs. Okay. So if you ask your doc, hey, how much would it cost me? You should know that price, mm -hmm. which I, I feel strongly about everything in medicine. They should have like a price list, like, like a deli. Yeah, right. Like right out there. <laughs> You know, lab test, everything. Anyhow, um, studies have correlated vitamin D with um, good bone health. We know that vitamin D is essential for your gut to absorb calcium. So vitamin D helps your stomach to absorb calcium. And calcium, when it gets in the blood, is important, of course, for bone formation, also for heart conduction. It has a number of different attributes of value. If vitamin D levels go too low and you're having trouble absorbing calcium, you have a backup mechanism. The parathyroid hormone stimulates absorption or stimulates release of calcium from bone. Mm. Not necessarily a good thing. I mean, it's important because it keeps you functioning, but obviously it's not good for the bone. The correlation between vitamin D and heart disease has been kind of mixed. A bulk of studies looked at that and found that higher vitamin D levels 
seem to correspond to lesser rates of heart failure, heart disease, and stiffening of the artery. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, when they looked at studies with calcium supplementation, a lot of women take vitamin D and calcium for their bones. Right. I don't advocate for the calcium part of the equation. When you look at the studies, dietary calcium corresponds to better cardiac health. However, calcium supplement, if you take a calcium tablet, the studies correlate with an increased risk of heart disease. Mm -hmm. It seems when the calcium is given in a bulk like that, a bolus, if you will, it may have the effect of stiffening the arteries over time. So the calcium supplement, not so valuable. Furthermore, the vitamin D, while it helps absorb the calcium, doesn't necessarily help direct it where to go. So it has been postulated that vitamin K is super important. To help that calcium know where to go, does it go to the bone, to the artery, to the brain? If it goes to the artery, it can increase the stiffening factor. So we now are starting to see this combination therapy being potentially more valuable. Vitamin K, specifically vitamin K2. There are three kinds of vitamin K, cleverly named K1, 2, and 3. Nobody said doctors were imaginative. But the K2 is also (laughs) known as menaquinone. It seems that when you take that along with your vitamin D, it may afford benefit with elasticity of the arteries. In fact, there was a study that looked at 180 micrograms of vitamin K per day. Over a period of several months, they noticed a decrease in C-reactive protein, which is an inflammatory marker in the blood, and a decrease in something called the pulse wave velocity, which shows a more elastic quality of the arteries. And that study was upheld even over several years. So vitamin K2 appears to correlate with possible softening of the arteries, Mm -hmm. which also is interesting, I find, and I hope you guys are interested, because warfarin or Coumadin, they tell what they tell people. Don't take green leafy vegetables because the vitamin K in them can alter the blood level of warfarin. And it turns out that taking warfarin seems to increase risk of arterial stiffening. Isn't that That's a paradox? Yeah, right. So what, what some individuals have chosen to do if they're on warfarin is to take vitamin K with it and adjust the dose to try to compensate. It's not an un, it's a, it seems like a reasonable approach. Mm-hmm. So in summary, vitamin D at too low a level can cause harm, maybe even at too high a level. They did a study looking at hospitalized patients who get surgery. Um, those who had a vitamin D level below 20, and when I say 20, that's commonly reported in nanograms per milliliter, NG slash ML. That's how we tend to measure it in, in America. Below 20 increased death rate, above 60 also an increased death rate. Why would high vitamin D be bad or how might it be bad? It's possible that it can be facilitating, not possible, in fact, vitamin D facilitates absorption not only of calcium, but other metals like lead and like cadmium. Right. So your vitamin D supplement can be accelerating absorption of toxic heavy metals, thus correlating to arterial stiffening possibly causing harm. So a good, safe target, right? When you get vitamin D measured, you want to have, I hope you have your pen out, you want to have your 25-hydroxy-D. That's the one that matters. There are different kinds of vitamin D that can be measured. 
the one that seems most consistent and reflective of your total body load is a 25-hydroxy-D. A safe, kind of broadly accepted threshold of good health for vitamin D is around 30. Below that correlates with possible osteoporosis and other adverse outcomes. Now, those studies looking at vitamin D in regard to cancer showed levels closer to 50 to have value. Based upon what I've read on vitamin D, what I've seen in the literature, there doesn't appear to be a ton of merit going significantly above 50. And I know some of the literature in the functional literature, they're talking about levels of 80, 90, 100. Remember, vitamin D is fat-soluble. There is such a thing as taking too much of it. A good safe level, and this came from the Institute of Medicine, and their recommendation was that without doing any blood work at all, so let's say your, your, um, your doctor won't order your vitamin D level, or you don't want to pay for it, what are you going to do, how much do you take? The Institute of Medicine has recommended that 4,000 international units per day is universally safe for the vast majority of people, wow. and that that can be done without uh, getting uh, blood levels. We would add to that vitamin K2 or menaquinone. And if you can get them both in one, that's even better. Did that thoroughly confuse? I mean, no. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Feel free to ask questions, guys, even afterward, because um, I think this is valuable to know as we decide how to manage our health. So I take vitamin D every day. Mm -hmm. I take 5,000 units along with 180 um, micrograms of K2 or menaquinone. I think the studies are fairly impressive. I live in the Northeast. I'm indoors all the time. The exposure to sun is non-existent. Um, one other detail about vitamin D. It, low levels correlate with obesity. Now, whether it contributes to obesity or if there's something about excess adiposity that blunts absorption, we have seen that. It's been reported in the literature. If your body mass index is above 30, uh, there's a high probability that vitamin D is deficient. Right. Um, we've noticed too, and this is kind of, you know, vitamin D is fascinating. Some people report improvement in their mood when they start vitamin D. Yeah. Actually get like, have you Happier, heard that? Happier, yeah. Because isn't it about the seasonal defective disorder where like they do the lights because of the vitamin D you need? That, that's a good Depression. insight because we always thought it was the, the light. Mm -hmm. Maybe it is the vitamin D. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, perks up the mood a little mm -hmm. bit. So there you go. Happy mood, strong bones, <laughs> elastic arteries. What's not to be happy about? What's left? Oh, um, virus. The virus. The virus. Yep. All right. Let's just talk in general for a moment, guys. Most of us who don't have diabetes, chronic lung disease, cystic fibrosis, or some other chronic illness, active malignancy, things that would weaken our immune system and make us vulnerable to bacterial infections. If you're not in that category of individual, and you develop a chest cold, a cough, a sinus infection, a sore throat, or even a fever consistent with the flu. These are viral illnesses, overwhelmingly. I was just talking to someone about the, um, the, um, the Z-Pac, mm -hmm. like the wonder drug. How many times do people say, you know, I'm coming down with, with a cold. I've got a sinus infection. My nose has been stuffy for two days. I think I need a Z-Pac. Mm -hmm. When did that become the magic bullet? Right? Isn't it? I think it's got a cool name. It's a Z-Pack. I like the name, Z-Pack. Mm -hmm. We need a cool name for something that's less toxic. <laughs> Here's the deal. If it's viral, which it almost invariably is, the antibiotics can do you harm. They can do harm by causing side effect from the antibiotic. 
by killing good, healthy bacteria. Think of the virus as struggling against bacteria, looking for food and shelter. And if you wipe out the bacteria, their natural competitor, they can proliferate more easily. In addition, when you obliterate the healthy bacteria in your colon, it negatively affects your immune function. And an oral dose of antibiotic can do that, and it can linger for weeks. So it can actually make things worse. There are circumstances where you would benefit from an antibiotic. Um, in general, it has to do with duration of symptom. If your symptoms of a sinus infection, a chest cold, are extending beyond a week, you know, maybe you're tipping the scale. Obviously, if you're feeling really sick, this isn't to imply that you ought not to be checked by your doctor. But here's how I like to tell people to, to go into the doc, right? Well, if you're sick and you, you don't know, maybe I need an antibiotic, maybe I don't. Oftentimes, doctors are inclined to prescribe because they believe it's what you want and they want you to be happy. And they're not certain that it'll do you harm and they're not certain that it won't help. So there's a, a tendency maybe to prescribe more than we should. But if you say to the doc, upon being offered an antibiotic, will I die if I don't take it? And the answer is no. Okay, then the next question might be, if I don't take it, will I get better on my own? And if the answer is probably, now you've established an expectation with the doctor, if you will, a partnership that can then say, listen, do you mind if I not take that? Wait a couple days and see how I do. Mm -hmm. What things can you do that'll help support you? Now, we're talking about this in the context of coronavirus. Let me just add, as a layperson, a doctor, and an observer of human behavior, that people are way overreacting. It's a virus. It's not good to catch it. But there are viruses out there all the time. Mm -hmm. The flu, all the time. I mean, I've heard people canceling vacations. Not to China, <laughs> just because. Just because. Right? Mm -hmm. Folks, take a deep breath. Right? It's being tracked. It's being monitored. If they develop an immunization, you'll know about it. In the meantime, cover your mouth and wash your hands. Right? Can we say it? it's the thing to do? Although, I don't like to cover your mouth with your arm thing. Oh, no. Like, when did that become common? Like, then it... It's gross. It's gross. You got all over your shirt. Yeah. I can wash my hands. What am I doing with my shirt? Yeah. Just go, like, I, like, right? It spreads the germs more, I feel. <laughs> so, besides that, what can be done? What's been shown to have potential merit? Keeping your immune system working properly means taking care of systemic health. Good sleep, good eating. There are some specific micronutrients that have been shown to have value. One of which is vitamin C. There was an article from the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition. They looked at preschool-age children, and we know they're little petri dishes, right? Little germ, germ factories. And they put one group of them on a probiotic and a vitamin C and found they had fewer infections over the span of the semester. Wow. I thought that was pretty interesting because mm -hmm. they're both so safe. A good, high-quality probiotic and vitamin C may afford some protective benefit. How about if you're feeling yourself getting ill? We don't have definitive answers, but we do know that vitamin C is a critical cofactor with collagen and with immune function. Also, there is a correlation between vitamin C and if it's given at high dose intravenously, there's been some evidence of its possibility to be actually killing viruses and bacteria. It's not a treatment known by the FDA, nor is it approved as a treatment for any infectious illness, but the mechanism of action is interesting. Mm -hmm. In fact, Dr. Martin, in a paper published in 2017 in the journal Chest, 
took it upon himself to give high-dose intravenous vitamin C to hospital patients with sepsis, a life-threatening form of typically bacterial infection. In the patients in whom he gave high-dose vitamin C to, their death rate was 8.5% compared to 40.4% in those who did not get it. Very compelling. When you look at, in this setting, hospitalized setting, the sickest patients, high-dose vitamin C intravenously, extraordinarily safe, inexpensive. It's disappointing to me that this has not become more common. Right. And that it's not being vigorous. Maybe it is being vigorously studied. I haven't seen that study published yet, but we'll keep an eye out for it. So in the face of an active infection, remember, slow to use the antibiotic. High-dose vitamin C may have merit. In some studies, up to 8 grams per day have been used orally. Uh, Zinc has been shown to possibly have merit. In some studies, doses up to 30 to 50 milligram for short-term use of about a week has been shown to possibly support immune function. Uh, Drip bar, we do offer high-dose intravenous zinc and vitamin C. Objective would be to safely support your health as you're fighting an infection to give you these cofactors that are part of your immune function. And I think just as importantly, to protect you from the risk of taking antibiotics. Mm -hmm. In many cases, that ought not to be used. So folks, that's um, highlights from today. Thanks for Mm -hmm. hanging with us. This is our Facebook Live, Wednesday at noon, Drip Bar Conversation. Um, Feel free to send us questions and comments and requests for topics. Uh, Next week, what do we have? What do we want to talk about next week? Should we promo next week? No, I think we should just want to surprise them. Yes, let's surprise all right, them. All right, we'll we'll do, surprise them. there'll be a surprise, but I want to talk about energy. Okay. Can we do that? I'll be a bullet. We talk, if you're like low in energy, we're going to talk about some approaches. All right, guys, bye for now. Thanks. Bye.